In this episode, we look at the Cardiff Explosives conspiracy trial. Now, I have to say, before I spoke to Mike O'Brien in the very first episode of this series, I didn't really have a clue about this case. And I think that was in part because of my age at the time. I was around four. Adrian Stone was one of many charged with offences connected to a Welsh nationalist bombing campaign. In summing up, the judge said, the central decision you have to make is as to honesty of witnesses The main contest is between the police and the defendants. What happened to Adrian has links to Michael Wright's case, which as you know was featured in the very first episode. And it's a shocking story that shows the lengths that some people will go to to try and destroy a man's life. I met Adrian in a busy pub in Philly to record this episode. So at times you might hear noises from the kitchen. Adrian, I wondered if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. My name's Adrian Stone and on April the 29th, 1982, I was arrested by South Wales Police, then Birmingham Anti-Terrorist Squad, London Anti-Terrorist Squad, but also involved in my arrest special branch, MI5. This was to do with the explosives conspiracy trial as it became known as, or Regina versus Stone et al. Also, they charged me possession under the Section 3, Part 1 of the Explosives Act 1883 of various items which they said were explosive and could be used to manufacture explosives. This was all related to, at that time, the tight half or second home campaign that was occurring in Wales between, oh, 1980 and up to 85. I wonder if you could just explain for the listeners who don't know what that sort of campaign was about. Because there's been a democratic deficit in Wales for years and there has been a number of insurgent movements within Wales. People had taken to burning second homes. You may recall on the BBC programme, not the nine o'clock news, an end joke they had, come home to a real fire by a second home in Wales. When I saw the new book that was produced on behalf of South Wales Peace in the five-year period, there were only 500 incidents, which is something they kept under their hats. I was actually charged with 13 or conspiracy to cause 13 of them, uh, which was linked with what the World Campaign, which was Workers' Army of the Welsh Republic, uh, which was a left-wing socialist group, as opposed to Libyan Dindur, the sons of Dindur, who nobody actually knows who they were, who did the majority of secondary burnings. There were people claiming to be Free Wales Army, FWA, and with the Adam Diffin Company, movement for the defence of Wales. Originally, I suppose this all goes back to the 1950s, where a number of people had fought in World War II. They came back and said, something must change. If all these colonies of England get independence, Wales should be getting independence. They were building on the pre-World War I, I suppose, Home Rule Party, which initially had been supported as an idea by Lloyd George. So independence for Wales was, one time or another, a mainstream political thought. In 1950, there was the Welsh Republican Army. Uh, one of the people I know actually bought 300 uniforms for it, along with someone who became a Labour Party lord. And they'd been arrested back in the 50s for possession of explosives, firearms, that sort of stuff. Some of them went to prison, some of them didn't. Then in the 60s, when the incestiture was announced of Prince Charles as Prince of Wales, then you had the Free Wales Army startup and mid the Adam Diffin Company. Now, there were two separate organisations. Free Wales Army was really Kyle Evans, who was right-wing. Indeed, at one time, he called me a communist. 
which I got was gone. Yeah. The other person then who became the head of director, commander of Media and Different Company, John Jenkins, I met on a couple of occasions. Very quiet, patriotic man who was thoughtful. Kyle got sentenced in 69 on the day of the incestiture. It was a show trial. But one of the people who was acquitted was, at that time, his name was John Underhill, who changed his name to David Boone, who was later arrested with me. He'd been a senior NCO with the engineers and was a bit of an explosives expert. Thank you for giving us that background information. What was life like before you were arrested? I know that you had been in the army. You were an army. Ah, well, that's the bit that gets really interesting. Going back to the end of 79 then, I joined Plague Cymru September the 4th, 1978. And I was a student at the time at the then Poly of Wales studying HND in chemistry with LRIC in material science. At the same time, I became a member of the University of Training Corps. Then I joined RRW and I was probably going to become a professional soldier because at that time, my original reasons for studying chemistry were that there were some very good jobs, well paid in chemistry and particularly in South Wales within the mining industry or with steel. Unfortunately, of course, because of London policies, that was finished. So we had politics, we had an education, and we had the military skills. So you had a lot of career aspirations. Oh, I did. I'd also, as a member of Plague Cymru, I'd become, at one point, the youngest chairman in the party of a branch. I, possibly initially up until 82, I'd been chairman of the branch, membership secretary, and I was on the National Youth Movement National Council. I'd also, of course, because of my left-wing politics, I became a member of the Welsh Socialist Republican Movement, which to an extent was a splinter group of Plaid Cymru. At that time, of course, there was a debate between left-wing nationalism and right-wing nationalism. And I don't mean fascist, I mean Tory-type capitalist. So I joined the WSM, which was a legitimate political movement who did engage in direct action protests, for example, sit downs, painting walls, that sort of thing, which some people frown upon, but I think it is a legitimate protest. Now, with the WSRM, I was a member of the Valleys Club and I was just about to be put on the national exec for the WSRM. However, of course, at the same time, I was with the army and training to be an officer and I wanted either assault pioneers or either Brigade reconnaissance, reconnaissance with the battalion. And the army did say a talent for creative violence, which I really think is a compliment. Maybe it's a sick personality. I don't know. <laughs> so you, you had, as I said, lots of career aspirations yes. to see things. And then you know, that you said you got, you got arrested uh, in 82. What, what happened when you were arrested? Well, I would go just before that in 82. Yeah. Because approximately six months before that, there was basically arrested Welsh nationalists over the Thai Half campaign, the second little campaign, because a lot of pressure we put on the police to solve what was happening. This was at the, really the beginning of the burning and second homes. They said, oh, it must be political. So initially they went to Plaid Cymru. I'd been to a demonstration at Seven Trent Water Authority, which at that time ran a lot of water in Wales, illegally in my opinion, because they'd thrown valleys and wanted to make dams, etc. There was a massive outpouring against Seven Trent and Liverpool and Birmingham. Now, at that demonstration, 
was a well-known pacifist by the name of Gwynfor Evans, who was an MP. And the idea of him being involved in violence is completely laughable. But we went outside the headquarters of Seven Trent, and I was one of the people photographed being part of the demonstration. Okay. The police then went round trying to identify everybody in the photographs. Um, that was interesting because the police came to interview me about the demonstration and I went to record their interview, which seemed to upset them. What, you mean as in you were recording? I was right? on my own device. So okay. it's an independent uh, view of what they'd said. Now, at the same time then, as I said, there was this second home campaign going on. But the campaign had just started by Welsh, Workers' Army of the Welsh Republic which incidentally, the word gwaur in Welsh means door. So a symbol they used was of a rising sun, which becomes later important in the conscious case. With them, they come down to interview people, but they also arrested a number of people. I mean, over 50 people being pulled in purely because of their politics. Like Tim Richards, who was chairman of the WSRF, there was a 78-year-old grandmother who was called in and held till her grandson turned up. And they put them to a variety of interrogations and then released them. But it was obvious that we had become a target for the South Wales Police or Special Branch. Then, about a week before I was arrested, I'd just done my Sanders assessment. And when I came back to barracks then, a friend of mine said, Stoney, two blokes from Special Branch came in to see the Colonel today and they asked for your file. So something's happening. It's either going to be good or very bad. Are you doing anything bad? And I said, no. So a week later, I got called into the Colonel's office and he said, um, I've been reading your assessment. I've decided I don't want you in my regiment. What do you do in your spare time? Well, I, I've never made any secret of my politics. Now, I told him I was involved with the local youth club where I was a junior leader. I was involved in local politics. I said, well, I've decided you're not the type of person for my regiment. I'm sacking you. Okay, so... So that's a bit of a shock. Well, it was because I then went out and one of my friends said, bloody hell, I owe you a Mars bar. <laughs> I said, don't worry, I'll collect. So that happened. Mm. And then you... I got up to my parents' house. Had alarm bells started to ring well, a little yes, bit. Because you're thinking... Prior to that. Why are they looking into all this? What's going on? Yes, but prior to that, because I knew the police were looking at members of WSRA, there'd been an OP, an observation post, put outside my parents' house, which lasted about 20 minutes because one of my neighbours rung my mother to say, do you know the police are watching your house? So I went to the kitchen window, looked out, and sure enough, I could see the car with two people in. And I thought, I'm going to have this, I'm going to ambush it. Okay. So I grabbed a camera, ran into the house, come back in a big loop and ended up behind the police. So I then went up to the car, knocked the window and they were completely confused. I waved at them and took photos and they got very annoyed with that. <laughs> Imagine they I did. I made them look like a pair of puddings. And there was the incident then down at the barracks. Then I went home and I put together all my kids. Now that morning at half past six, my father and call out to work because he was head of security for a local firm. And then about 15 minutes later, there was a knock on the door. My mother thought he's forgotten something. So she went to the door and impelled the police. She was pinned against the wall. There was a sound of cops running up the stairs and my bedroom doors opened. Now this may shock some of your listeners, but I sleep in the news. So I reacted and at that time, there were three officers who came into the room, one of whom I now know to be Sergeant Stuart Lewis. The listeners will know who Lewis is if they've listened to the first episode. So they, they're coming through your room, yours naked. There, yes, there are three cops. And now there's an unfortunate habit Stuart Lewis had got stuttering when he's excited. Now, whether that's a compliment to me being naked or whether it was the operation, but he said, you're na 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 nicked. I went, what? And he repeated himself. I thought it was part of an exercise. So 
at that point then, Superintendent Rehill went to the foot of my bed and was next to the dressing table. I think that's good. Will become important in a little while. Now, Gordon Smith and Stuart Lewis then watched me get dressed and told me I was being arrested for burglary and for explosive stuff. Like that. And they then took me downstairs, took me to the car, leaving Ray Hill in the bedroom and the other police as well. Now, one of them had pinned my sister, Julie, with my twin sister, and four for 10 to the wall and was trying to argue with her that she shouldn't move. Bad mistake, that. Another one, like, since I've never got my mother. So as I was being taken downstairs, I shed my mother. Phone radio was my sister. I was then taken into the car and put in the back with Stuart Lewis. And in front of me then was Gordon Smith. And the driver was DC Allen Mead. They then started to drive away. And Smith then proceeded to talk to me and saying that I was going to be arrested. One of the charges was going to be burglary, but I pointed out I wasn't a burglar. He said, yeah, but you broke into people's houses to bomb them. So we can throw that at you. I was denying it all the time. And I said, well, where are you taking me? And Smith said to me, Rumley. Now, he did not make it at that time clear whether it was Rumley Gwent, the top of this valley, come Rumley, or Rumley Cardiff. In any event, neither was true. They took me to the police headquarters at Witcher, where they put me inside. But at the same time, they'd also done an arrest on Amanda Singer, who was secretary for Plaid Youth in Rumley Valley, and also a sort of girlfriend. So I removed my shoes, belt, etc., and put into a cell. Felt like about 20 minutes or so. I was then taken out of the cell and my first interview was with Smith, Lewis and Meade, who proceeded to lay out the number of charges that they were going to bring against me and interrogation began and threats were made to me. So let me just stop you there. So two things, threats, what sort of threats? That I would be beaten up, that I would be picked up by Birmingham anti-terrorist squad and sent off to Birmingham. Then I'd be sent off to London and they would shuttle me around and I would disappear. Now, unfortunately, I've got the wrong type of personality to threat. I get violent and I get angry. I don't have flights. You didn't have a lawyer at that stage? No. You were denied access? I did ask for a lawyer. Yep. But I was told by Smith, you'll get some smart-ass lawyer who'll get you off. So you were denied access and... You're then interrogated, but they've already told you that they're charging you with offences or you're going to be charged. So they've made their mind up. They're not investigating the offences. They're not saying, okay, tell us what your, your account is or you accept your involvement. They've made their mind up. And it's just about then putting you through this intense process of pressure to see whether you're crack, presumably. Yes. And if I'll name other people as well. Now, when they were interviewing me, Alan Mead was writing down in longhand on an A4 sheet of paper what was allegedly being said. However, I did notice at times he was writing when nobody was talking. Right. right. And was it being recorded digitally as well? No, there was no recording. Funny enough, Pace came in after my case, which case me one of the police banned the rights. How many times and how long are you interviewed for by those sort of set of officers? Well, I've interviewed over the two days, but... And how many times over those two days, roughly? Four times, I believe. Because when that interview finished, and I'd been told in the interview as well that Amanda Singer had been arrested, and she's singing like a canary. I thought, oh, that's a pity, because she's bloody awful singing. <laughs> so then I was taken to my cell, because like I said, I get angry. And I think Stuart Lewis was a little bit afraid I was going to hit him. 
because he, he struck me as more cowardly than Smith. Anyway, I was in the cell and two officers come in. Well, two of them were Strathbone Ave and Serious Crimes, who come in, interrogate me in the cell about the Seven Trent Water Authority ball. Now, I have to pay full tribute to Strathbone Ave and police. They were fair. Their notes were accurate. And also they decided it was pointless interview because I knew nothing. And so you were interviewed by them. Mm -hmm. And are you interviewed by any other forces? I'm interviewed then, that afternoon, by Birmingham Anti-Terrorist Squad. So you were interviewed by them, and there's... Sarah, I also interviewed as well, which they totally denied happened. I was taken upstairs then into the special branch office, where two special branch officers and MI5 officers interrogated. Each of the interviews lasted a minimum of between an hour and two hours. And um, all that time, mm -hmm. you haven't got a lawyer with you. You're, you're on your own. You're on your own. Um, I didn't have food and I didn't have water. And you're young. You're, how old are you? Well, at that time, I was 21. So you're young with yes. no one there to help you. Yeah. And obviously, you're being questioned by various forces. Yes. This carried on part way through the night as well. So you've got no water, no food, yeah. and there's interrogation through the night. Yeah. So the next day, I was interrogated by the same people again, but also in addition, London Anti-Terrorist Squad, which was Sergeant Mickey Flack and the DC Sharon Blooms. Bloomson taking the notes and his standard reply when questioned in court was, if it's not on my notes, it didn't happen. Right. It's completely stonewalled because a number of us made accusations that the notes were not accurate. But also very important, that morning there was an interview with South Wales Police and the first one I had was thrown out of court by His Honour Justice Ferguson on the grounds the police were proven not to have cautioned me. And that was true of all of us who had been interviewed, that we weren't cautioned. You weren't cautioned for how, all the interviews or just some of all of the interviews. All 36 hours I was in custody. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that... In addition then, Gordon Smith told, and it was recorded by Alan Mead, they'd found chlorate in my house. Chlorate is class eight explosive. You can find it in match heads, mouthwash, fireworks. Basically, you could use weed killer and sugar to make a bomb. But this wasn't weed killer. It was a special type of chlorate. It was an anilla potassium chlorate. Now, the phrase anilla is basically means it's analytically pure. So you would use it in a laboratory at its 99.99999% plus pure. There is only one place in the UK manufactures it and that is the Isle of Man and both sides defense and prosecution tried to show how I could be in possession of it because I'd studied chemistry of course they said laboratory but they went to the Pontier Wales and the lab assistants and the heads of department said we don't use it so did you accept that no that was I knew the end did so the other well, just, hold on, let's just be yeah. clear so they're saying that you've got this in your yes. property this item you're saying that that wasn't yeah. the case and it was planted. Yes. And it's probably planted by either Rayville or Smith, Gordon Smith. Are those the officers that remained when you were being... Ray Hills remained, but Gordon Smith told me, I think you're guilty, I know you're guilty, and if I have to fit you up, I will. And coincidentally, day before I was arrested, the three officers, Hill, Smith and Lewis, had been at the police forensic laboratory in Chepstow, which is the only other place in Wales that has analog potassium chlorate. The quantity they claim they found was in 
a metal goblet I'd been given for my 18th birthday was approximately one hundredth of an ounce. You'd be talking less than a match head. And it's a white crystalline substance. So it, it would be possible for anyone to look at it and say, oh, that's, that's employed. You'd have to test it. And the test was done by a forensic scientist at Chepstone. And he had not phoned the police until after 11 o'clock on Friday morning to say they'd found potassium chloride. So prior to that time, Gordon Smith saying they'd found chloride is an anomaly because there is no way Gordon Smith could have known it was chloride. He had worked with the drug squad, but they don't use chloride in drugs. And he tried to pass it off with a comment or from my experience with drugs. So that's why you're suspicious as to who plants that evidence. Yes. Because of the fact that they had told you they knew it was there before yeah. they could have known it was there. Yes. I understand. And that so, came up being caught and there was never an answer by the police how they knew before they were told. Let's fast forward slightly. You are charged. How many of you were charged the conspiracy? Well, they did drop charges against some people, but if I say 10. 10, okay. And you're remanded in custody, aren't you? Yes, I'm remanded in Cardiff Prison, and I served six months there before I actually the papers served on me, and basically Robert Griffiths had been arrested with me. He did a charge dropped against him, so there was a change in circumstances. And since he was on bail, which was a tactic the police used, him on bail, but the rest of us not on bail, try and split us. Now, I admit I had met Robert Griffiths a number of times before. He was sent to the most social public world. So that's not a surprise. I'd been arrested. Nick Hodges, who I knew from the Welsh Social Public Movement in Plaikamry. Garth Westacott, who was a member of the WSLM, but I didn't really know only his face because he was a musician. Then came Dave Burns, who was in the WSLM, who I'd never met before. In fact, I only met him at the entrance to the court where I both realised we'd gone in at the same time and we introduced ourselves. Then, after Dave Burns, you've got, well, David Burns, his name was. He's dead now, unfortunately. He died last year. Uh, but originally, it'd be John Underhill, who I'd mentioned with the FWA trial, the explosive NCO. He'd been charged with, with bombing and conspiracy. All those charges were dropped. So let's talk about your time on remand, we can. Yeah. You're on remand. Yeah. You've never obviously been in prison setting before. What was that experience like when you're on remand in Cardiff prison, age 21, for an offence you haven't committed? Well, because in the army, it wasn't that harsh as such. Because you were used to structure and discipline? Yes. So I needed to keep my cell clean, make my bed, queue up for food, that sort of thing. However, I mean, put in one of the old condemned mat cells, which I must recommend, they're about six inches and wide wider and longer than the uh, normal cells. And you can look that, look out down onto a parking guard. Literally, I've slept in a condemned man's cell because they were on B-wing, second landing, and I was placed with an alcoholic who was drying out, George, who was a really nice man when he was sober. And you went through what would have been archways under the, under the cells, that would have taken you to the condemned man's hanging cell where he dropped. And I actually slept up one time as well with the man dropped. So if people play psychological games with me, I can stride and really like rough shed over it. However, I'd been there about a week when I saw my first suicide attempt, which was the man next door. Funny enough, I was aware of him because he came from the same area as me in Cathay. And he'd cut his throat, his wrists, his knees, his ankles with a homemade blade he'd got from a raised blade. We knew he tried to commit suicide because they 
wouldn't open the door for us until they'd moved it out. And then they opened the doors to let us out. And of course, the landing cubes complained, oh, who's going to clean this bloody mess up? So that was the first suicide attempt I saw. And, and during that time, mm-hmm. that six month period, how many sort of suicide attempts did you see? And, and there were three in total. One will try to hang himself. Not a very good job because he fell and hit his face. So he more knocked his teeth out than anything else. The other one then had trunk bleach, which isn't a very good way to go. If you're going to kill yourself, at least make sure it's not that painful. And you obviously would have seen other violence going on. Uh, yes. Around yeah. the prison. Well, there were cocoa wins and the cocoa win is basically where you take a hot liquid and add like a dozen spoonfuls of sugar. Yeah. make a primitive napalm and you throw it in someone's face so it hits, sticks and burns. So you've seen all these sort of things. Oh, and, and then person chucked over the landing, but he was quite safe though because there was net in there so he bounced like a trampoline. If I'd been there uh, about six months earlier, Eddie Browning took somebody's eye out and bounced him down the landing because the man had been an informer against him and Eddie Brown had been so wound up about it. So he got a seven-year sentence for aggravated burglary. This is the same Eddie Browning who later got falsely accused of the M50 Larry Wilkes murder. He okay. in the uh, Welsh Guards. Uh, he was a really nice man at all. Yes, they were, there was quite often... There's quite a lot of silence. So let's move on a little bit because obviously at some point you have a trial and it was a massive trial. So September, October yeah. 83, it you had lasting trial. six weeks. Uh, at that time, cost well over a quarter of a million. And one of the things that, that happened was that there was this idea that there were meant to be signed confessions. That That's... Stuart Lewis, one of the officers who, who, who we know, has come up quite a few occasions on, on the podcast series, had been involved in. Can you just explain to the listeners what that was about? Because we were alone with the police, it would always be our word against theirs. Now, for some strange reason, they seem to think that villains have this urge to empty their souls to the police in the middle of an interrogation. So I'd already done an anti-interrogation course with the army. So, you know, I've had a man put an SLR between my knees and bounce up and down on them. I mean, physical stuff, not that be badly stuff. Anyway, so the police are going to go at me and I'm saying, like I said, I threatened them. What happened then with uh, Nick Hodges, who was emotionally immature, only about six months younger than me, they kept on going on at him and saying about the threat to his family, his brother, his mother and father. Your father will never work again because he was a self-employed electrician. His brother was a PhD chemistry student and he'll never get a job. Nobody will trust him. The brother of Obama. Anyway, Nick, for some stupid reason, then decided, oh yeah, I'll confess. Even though he was innocent, as he said at the time in the court, you know, it was a very strange feeling. Even though he knew he was innocent, he just stopped the pressure and they left him alone. And that's all he was concerned about at that time. And I know that Stuart Lewis and Gordon Smith and other officers would suggest things to you. Well, suppose we say this. That's not admitting it, is it? You can be a lookout if you want. So Nick Hodges took the easy option, saying that he was the lookout and I was the man who made the bomb and planted the bomb. This is for um, the GKN uh, bombing in Cardiff. Not true, but he said it and he was quite willing to do that because of the pressure they brought against him. Also, of course, I can go 68 hours without sleep. Sleep deprivation was having a go at Nick 
and others as well. Also, they handcuffed him to a radiator. Now, in South Africa, of course, that's illegal. But in South Wales Police, in Rummy Police Station, in Canton Police Station, a standard practice. I know that when we spoke mm-hmm. to Mike O'Brien again, he was handcuffed to hot radiators. And certainly the, the report was looking to that. The other police force said that that was sort of standard in Canton. Well, they explained that they didn't have enough holding cells and the radiator was secured if they had handcuffed it to a radiator and therefore he right. couldn't run away. <laughs> like he's not surrounded by police officers, walls, bars, etc. You know, I read, I don't know how accurate this is, that, you know, you had alibis for like various this. dates. That was one of the things Smith particularly really hated. I think then you have like a hundred alibis to do what, well, or is that a bit of a I know that is probably correct because well, I was with my battalion up at Semi Bridge and we, we were doing a full defence. So I actually give him an eight figure grid reference as to where I was. I'm sharing a fire pit with a bloke who went on to join the SAS. So it's quite obvious because we were there and my platoon was there. In fact, the exercise got called off because the temperature went down to minus 15. Now, people heard me on the radio and saw me, et cetera. And that was just one of the uh, things that's the Pontypridd body. You had alibis. Yes. For every come... single one. For every single one. Okay. When I was at a party where there was a magistrate, a number of councillors, and he's going, oh, your alibis are too perfect. You must have known. So let's deal with the evidence against you at your trial. Is obviously you've got this confession where someone's saying you are the one that planted the plant. Oh, that charge was dropped. Okay. So what's the actual evidence against you in summary? Right. Uh, sorry, section three. Explosives Act 1883 in part one, basically there's a list of items which you would find almost all around the house. For example, a light bulb, copper wire, yeah, cotton wool. Uh-huh. Common items, yeah. Well, you may think very common, but potassium chloride, which I always denied. Yeah, so that's the evidence that was planted. Hexamine, yeah. which is basically the solid fuel that the army used to people to use with their stones. Okay. I've still got some in my house. So the evidence against you is always different. Oil and clock. Yes. But they said that these were components that could be made to a And then there's section three explosives that the person has to make a defense of why they're in his possession. Because even the judge says, and you're right, I tinge myself slightly pink at this. The defendant has to prove a reasonable reason for these items. Mm-hmm. So we went to court and I said, everything I admit, you just find it is cotton wool. I'm a war gamer amongst many things, but also I got two sisters. They have makeup. They take makeup off. Yeah. But the particular thing there was the potassium chloride, which I said had to be pl- planted by the police. But apart from that, right. the potassium chloride and the other items which you could give an explanation yeah. for, because that was, standard, that was the evidence. That was the only evidence against me of possession. Now, with regards to the conspiracy, you may be aware that conspiracy has been defined as a nod and a whip. Well, you've just committed conspiracy. So when we came there, because I was charged with conspiracy with Nick Hodges, I'll name as well David Burns, who was then dropped. Yeah. But if you go through it, it's a matter of public record. So as I said, we start going up to about 10 people who had originally been arrested, landed on conspiracy charges. But there was nothing, no tape recordings, no writing, anything that actually linked me to a conspiracy. And in fact, the potassium chlorate, the only time that was ever used in a bomb was in the Tory club bombing of Gloucester, which they never asked me any questions about. I was never linked to Welsh nationalists. So the evidence is weak and you obviously are denying the allegations. Yeah. And in summing up... Well, the judge 
is only just his fault, as I mentioned previously. He went and said, it's clear somebody's lying in this case. It's either if you believe the defendants, the police, or if you believe the police, it's the defendants. And he specifically said, the jury, you have to make your mind up. And the jury acquitted me on one charges unanimously within five minutes and was found not guilty. The interesting bit about that is when we came into court, because of the noise that was going on, I didn't hear the jury fall and be say at the time, not guilty. I only heard them say the word guilty and everybody start cheering. So I thought, you bastards. I thought you were my friends. And <laughs> so when they're cheering, your friends, you're getting what you that's a bit too bad. So what actually has happened there, just so we're yeah. clear, is that within five minutes of the, the jury going out to deliberate... The jury had made up the decision that I was not guilty. And you they thought to Nick Hodges... That, but just so yeah. people who are listening, this isn't a short trial. You know, there's a lot of evidence. Yeah. I realise there's, there's a charge as well, but within yeah. five minutes, not guilty. Yeah, on all charges. And how did that make you feel when you were, I realised initially you didn't realise you were found not guilty, but eventually when well, you did, party that night. <laughs> yeah. So eventually you, you're acquitted. How did that make you feel? Well, again, a mixture of elation and annoyance because prior to that, I'd been having run-ins with the police and in the court case as well, uh, Ray Hill had lost his temper in the witness box with me. And the judge had to tell him, shut up. And the look on the cop's face when they'd realised, and he Smith's face, because he resigned within a month of the verdicts. Well, it, it must have been a real humiliation. It was. Please, because they put a lot of time and effort into this. Well, I said, you so much effort. But... Well, in their mind. Yeah. And then a lot of public expense, a lot of yes. money spent, and, and, and you're acquitted. Obviously, looking back, hindsight's a good thing. And... Um, I appreciate that sometimes when they, people think of a miscarriage of justice, they think of it as someone who was found guilty of something, maybe sent to prison, served some time, their convictions overturned on appeal. But a miscarriage of justice affects people who are charged. I was deprived of liberty for six and a half months. Yeah. Gareth Westacott for 15 months. Now, when you normally think of Cardiff prison, it's short-term prison sentences. So on a six-month sentence, that would have been a nine-month sentence at the time with one third off for remission. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you yeah. is how has the stigma of being involved in this case and the allegations that made against you, the false allegations, deliberately false allegations, how has that affected your, your whole life? It has not made me a sweet person. I'm a 21 death threats. I've dealt with 19 of them. And the only two I haven't dealt with came from friends. And I don't have that many friends. Now, the other thing, of course, is it ruined any chance I had of working in a laboratory. The ironic thing is, about a year after I was acquitted, I was asked if I wanted to go back to regiment. And they said, oh, don't worry. We knew you were innocent. So so it had a long-term effect on you. It has. And I know mm. but it, it must be difficult to talk about, but... If you were able to give some, let's say another person's accused of something quite similar, a yes. parent's defence, yeah. when they're around the age you were, yeah. what would your advice be to someone in that position? Get a bloody good lawyer, right? But they're going to throw things at you and you just keep your head down and you go straight through it. They will offer you deals. Because when I was being interrogated by Gordon Smith and Stuart Lewis, I was offered £10,000 
to name David Ellis Thomas and his MP as the head of my being Glindor. I'm responsible because he'd upset the establishment. I was offered 5,000 votes to name Robert Griffiths, who was one of my co-accused and secretary of the WSRM, as being involved with the World Campaign. I was offered 5,000 pounds to name Tim Richards, who was chairman of the WSRM, of being involved with uh, the World Campaign. It didn't matter that these were false allegations. Somebody in authority wanted those people shut up and they were prepared to pay for lies to shut them up. Now, you've got to believe in yourself and just keep on fighting them. Don't give up. Don't ever give up on them. The same as might have been said with the Birmingham Six people, when you know you're in the right. I remember telling them, won't you try this? At City Publications, because I then changed my life around and went to work in advertising. Because he said to me, what's your greatest strength? I said, when I'm in the right, I don't back down. And then he said, what's your greatest weakness? I said, when I'm in the right, I don't back down. I know lots of people have said different advice, but essentially what you're saying is don't give up and don't give an inch. Everybody fights, nobody quits. And no matter what they say, you know they're lying. There's a famous case called the Colfrey case where there was this teenage black boy, right, who'd been pulled in by London police, who'd been interrogated and treated very roughly by them. And he confessed to stealing a toy. Now, in his property was actually the receipt where he bought that toy, right? And it came to court and he was acquitted. But ask yourself, what makes an innocent person think that the best thing I can do is give myself up to them? Even though I know it's wrong and I know with Nick Hodges, he said it was because it was to stop the pressure they'll put them under. And they were using sleep deprivation. And of course, since they've introduced coordinates of interviews, there's been a massive number of so-called cell confessions, the admissions on the way mm-hmm. from the cell to the inter- interrogation room. So the key bit is don't give up, no. don't give anyone any anything to work with yeah. and just help yeah. remember that you know the truth. I spent, what, six months meeting Archibald, the book the police used to work out what an offence is and what they need to prove. That gives you an insight to that, what the police mind is. Because sometimes when they make the fake statements, they put down what we put this year. And it's just enough to get you convicted. And when you're on remand, pay attention about what's going on around you. Because there will be people who sell you out because they're lazy, stupid, and they think they can feather their own nest at your discomfort. And the other one, of course, is when you're doing this stuff and you finally get people to believe you, and you will get people who will call you bomber, stuff like that. 40 years after the event. They might not even have been born there. Keep a bloody good right hand and smack the bastards. <laughs> Give them a real good kick in. Right? On that note, thank you very much, Adrian, for your time. I sound like a right suck. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Adrian for speaking to me about what happened to him It is a very shocking story. In the next episode, the final episode of this series, I talk to John Acti. I'm sure lots of people are familiar with the case. Essentially, Lynette White was murdered on the 14th of February 1988. It was a horrific murder. And the police issued a photo fit of an image of a white male seen in the vicinity who had an injured, blood-stained hand. But 10 months later, five black and mixed-race males were charged with the murder. 
They were innocent. And what happened to them is absolutely shocking. 